world of sound bites and constant visual stimulation telling us how to look, act, talk, and feel, we have lost our ability to connect. Instead of focusing on what celebrities are doing as if they were our acquaintances, maybe we can look more to each other to emulate and learn from. Join us Friday mornings from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. with Peace by Peace, where we discuss issues that affect our peace, peace of humanity, and peace in our time. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to... KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She testified many times in Congress in the California legislature and on uh, privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel. Um, she had her no- own 90-minute uh, PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. You know, I am always so thrilled to bring on people who have such a passion for privacy. Tonight's guest is a woman that I've met several times up in Sacramento. We've we've seen each other at conferences and at brainstorming sessions. And I've always been so excited about the great things that she's doing. And, and she's had a, a great background. I want to tell our audience a little bit about her. Tonight, we're going to be interviewing Deborah Pierce, who is Executive Director for Privacy Activism. That's privacyactivism.org, by the way. Deborah is the Executive Director, and her work focuses on consumer education campaigns, advocacy, and analysis of privacy issues. Her work is, uh, has a particular emphasis on data flow, data matching, and privacy risks associated with data collection. In 2005, Deborah chaired the Association for Computer Machinery's uh, Computers, Freedom, and Privacy Conference. And that conference brought together attendees not only from government, business, education, and nonprofits, but also from the community of computer professionals like hackers and crackers and engineers who actually work the code in cyberspace. Deborah is currently a member of the University of Washington's Schindler Center for Law, Commerce, and Technology Advisory Committee. She was a committee member of the Washington State Bars Association's Access to Justice Committee as well. And this committee was formed to develop more detailed guidelines addressing the issue of technological impact on privacy within the justice system. Really important area. She previously worked as a staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Remember, we had Lee Tian on our show last year, a a great, another great nonprofit. And there she worked on issues related to electronic privacy, database information collection, and personal identity. So we're really thrilled that she's joining us tonight from San Francisco area, the Bay Area. And good evening. Hi, good evening, Mari. Oh, we're so glad that you were able to come on tonight, and we have a bunch of questions. How did you become so passionate about privacy? Well, it actually started when I was quite young. I was one of those people that, you know, as a little girl, I had a little diary with a key, and (laughs) I would lock it up and, you know, hide the key and hide the diary. And then um, when I got older, I, I worked in an office where, as a student, I I had a lot of access to other people's personal information. 
and I didn't know the law, I didn't know the policy behind it, but it just felt like I, as a student, should not have that kind of access to personal information, and it kind of made me queasy even back then. And, you know, but, you know, I had that job. So, you know, like a lot of privacy advocates, you know, I kind of come from the dark side. And, you know, now that I know, you know, the law and policy, you know, I can reflect back about that. But um, that's kind of where I come from. And then when I went to my very first Computers Freedom and Privacy Conference, you know, back as a law student, that was that was pretty much it. The floodgates were opened and, you know, it was clear that, you know, privacy was going to become my life. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting how I had just seen something about uh, something on TV recently about somebody who got into their child's uh, diary and, and read it, and it was really quite revealing and, and also very invasive. And uh, then there was another uh, another person who had told us recently about reading um, love letters between her parents after her parents died and how strange that was and and quite eerie. And, uh, you know, you wonder if her parents would have really liked her to read it or not. You know, it seems like such an invasion of privacy that we haven't really talked about that um, on the show per se. But you're right. All those issues of, you know, what what information is known about us and what can we control that other people shouldn't see and what what real privacy do we have. So it's uh, it's a real important area. So you were talking about that you went to the Association for Computer Machinery Freedom and Privacy Conference, and then you ended up being in charge of it. So tell us more about that association. Well, it's it's actually a really great conference. I mean, as a law student, um, when I, I went, I had no idea what I was stepping into, but it is an exploration of computers freedom and privacy and you know just to pick one issue at the time when i went we were talking encryption was all the rage and there was the clipper chip and you know a lot of things on who should have access to your email messages and should you be allowed to encrypt those and you know was encryption a munition and how should that be regulated and you know all of those things and i had never thought about encryption I didn't realize that, you know, there were about 10 different sides to that issue. You know, the business community had a viewpoint, the hackers had a viewpoint, the cryptographers had a viewpoint, the FBI had a a viewpoint. All those people were in the room. And I just remember being completely overwhelmed, you know, on that particular issue. And then, you know, there was three days of those kinds of issues. And so it was just one of those moments I just spent, you know, three full days being, you know, just absorbing all of that information. And so when I ended up chairing it a couple years ago, I wanted to kind of go back to some of the excitement of those those older days. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with it was get people um, familiar with the idea of what it's like to live in a panoptic society. And so a lot of the things that I did for that conference were, you know, very... Um, visceral. Like I, I put um, surveillance domes on all the conference bags. <laughs> <laughs> and I put live cameras in some of them because I wanted people to be creeped out by it because yes. we live in a world where, you know, there are video surveillance cameras on every street corner and you don't realize it. You're not looking at them. But when you have one in your hand and it's following you around for three days, you, you know, people told me they said that was great. You know, I was really creeped out by it, but I'm really <laughs> glad you did this, and and that was good because some people you know, you just don't think about it, and you know, I wanted it to be in their face. Exactly. So so the they were glad that you did it, and what I mean, do you think that that brought them to a higher level of consciousness about the impact on on people and citizens experiencing this out in real life? I think so. I think many, you know, many of us in the privacy community, we talk about privacy, we talk about, like when you were just talking just now about, you know, reading people's love letters, you know, it's very invasive. And it's one thing to talk about it in an academic way. It's quite another to experience it firsthand. And so, you know, this was kind of putting the shoe on the other foot, you know, for you know, all the law enforcement people that were there, all the privacy advocates that were there, all the business people that were there. Here's what it feels like. Here's right. what it's like. And it's not something that, you know, they had experienced quite so up close and personal before. 
Right. And, and that was pretty transparent. They knew it was there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we told them. And also, I knew where the cameras were. We only had, like, maybe five or six. And I gave them to people who I trusted. And, you know, I was like, no, no one's carrying any cameras into the restrooms or anything right. like right. that. Right. And, so, you know, I had I had control over all of those. Exactly. You know, we have cameras here in the studios, too. We have expensive equipment. And so, you know, the general manager has has one in the studios to see if anybody is taking anything or, you know, we're on a campus, you're not supposed to be drinking. And as a matter of fact, you know, in, in recent months, there there were people who were doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, and then they were no longer DJs anymore. So uh, how did they find out? Well, in the middle of the night, you know, there what somebody was able to go back and retrieve some of the uh, the video surveillance. And but this is it. Everybody knows. I mean, the cameras are, are pretty apparent. So if you're going to do something like that, you're really pretty stupid. You know? right. But you but know, it does. It is a creepy feeling. Yeah. You know, it is a creepy feeling. And there's a, there's a difference between you know protecting the inventory that you have in your space and having you know video surveillance everywhere as soon as you walk out the door. Exactly. You're walking down the street. There's two very different things. Sure, sure. And a lot of people are not real happy about in our in Orange County here, there's um, video surveillance for if you go through a red light and people are not happy about that <laughs> as well to, you know, since there can you can get a ticket in the mail and no one even saw you. It just, you know, it's just been on the uh, the video surveillance. So we are becoming much more of a surveillance society. And, and you're right, there are some things that make sense for protection of, you know, in, in garages at night. I mean, I think I would feel better knowing that there's somebody watching to make sure that I'm going to be safe getting to my car maybe late at night after I've been at the university teaching. Um, but on, uh, but it should be transparent. Yes. I think that's the, the main issue and, and not in the bathrooms like you're talking about. Exactly. So is that, that, that was really smart to do that. Yeah, everybody got to experience that. It's like those of when I speak about identity theft and those people in the audience who've lived it and those law enforcement people who've lived it or judges or lawyers, there's an entirely different level of consciousness that that they can really get it. And it's like you said, it's one thing to talk about it academically or how horrible it is, but it's another thing to really experience it. And that is the highest level of understanding, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you're a member of the University of Washington's uh, Commerce and Technology Advisory Committee. So w- what are you doing on that committee? That's actually a really good committee. Um, what, what they're doing, it's with the law school, and they have a lot of interns, and so we get to work with a lot of law school students, and particularly about law and technology. Um, some of them are particularly interested in privacy. So one of the things that we've been working on is um, letting the students explore RFID, radio frequency identification tags, and how those can be used in a business setting, Um, what are the the good uses of RFIDs, why would I want these, as opposed to RFIDs in identity documents, um, which is not a great use of RFIDs. And so, you know, having that exploration in a law school um, setting is very nice, and then also taking that and the the Scheidler Center sets up um, uh, little mini conferences for the business community in in the Seattle, the greater Seattle area, and so a lot of um, law firms take part, a lot of small businesses take part, and so they also learn all of you know the you know new technology, um, things to be aware of, you know how to handle your data. Um, Etc. And so it's it's a really good program. It's a good match for um, students who are just starting out, and as well as um, experienced business people who may not be up on the latest technology. Okay, so when you're talking about uh, RFIDs in commerce, for example, for in- inventory, I could see how that would be really, you know, a, a great help so that you know how much you have in inventory, how much you have to reorder, what you don't have. Um, exactly, but also being able to track it when it's in transit. You know, is this this item coming to me from here, and if it's lost, how can I find it? Exactly. What about, uh, do you talk about the dark side of that as well, as far as, for example, if, if my underwear or something that I'm going to be using or my purse or something has an RFID in it for inventory purposes or tracking, do you 
deal with the issue of having it um, turned off, so to speak, when it leaves the store? Absolutely. Um, and that's an issue that never ceases to, to surprise me, that people don't think of these things. You know, they're, they're, they're so focused on being able to track their inventory that they don't really think about how, cons- how customers will, will view it. And, you know, whether or not they'll feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And so, you know, we've discussed um, once the transaction is over, you know, making sure that you you kill that RFID tag, you know, or remove it or, you know, at least tell the customer, here's how you remove it when you get home. Right. Making sure that 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 tag is killed in some way. So, yeah, you know, we, we talk about that. And, you know, as well as, like I said, you know, do you want to put them in other kinds of documents that people use, like you know, credit cards, et cetera? There's a big discussion going on um, right now about whether or not um, that's an appropriate use of RFID tags, even though some credit cards do have them in them already. Um, but that's a, a still an ongoing discussion. In the state of Washington, are are there any laws with regards to safeguards on RFIDs? You know, we. We did get a law passed in California last year that was vetoed by our governor that was introduced by Senator Simidian, who's going to be on our show in a couple of weeks, too. Great. And um, and so I wonder, are there any, in the state of Washington, are there any laws um, protecting or safeguarding the, um, you know, the RFIDs so that they are turned off or that there's something in there to... Uh, protect consumers? Not that I'm aware of. Um, it's it's um, a fairly new discussion, and a lot of states are starting to have that discussion, but it's still too new, really, um, to know how far to go in legislation. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the governor in California vetoed um, the bills. I think they were really concerned that it would inhibit innovation. Right. Yeah. You know, we had Catherine Albrecht on our show who wrote Spy Chips. Mm-hmm. And um, I think her, I'm trying to remember what state she's in in the East Coast. But she's they, in New Hampshire. Right. Didn't they pass something? I think they passed something in New Hampshire that was um, at least introducing some safeguards. I can't remember what it was. But, um, yeah, I think her book, when I read her book, I was, you know, it really opened my eyes as to... Um, Yes, there's wonderful ways that you can utilize this in commerce, but there are, you know, if that information is not turned off and if that information is shared or if it's used like in the in the movie Minority Report, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, that kind of stuff is a little bit worrisome for me, too. But it's great that you're using law students. So are they actually getting a credit then through the university to be yes. great? Yes, and um, several of them, you know, are writing law review articles um, for you know their own journals, you know, at, at University of Washington. So that's that's also good because it's coming through the center, and it's a place where we can all have that discussion. So yeah, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm yeah. happy to be a part of that. <laughs> I know. I mean, there wasn't anything really going on when I was in law school about privacy, except for the law of privacy when you t- when you took your torts class. Exactly. That's, you know, that was the same thing. For me, I was just at the very end. Um, I graduated in 1995, and that was, you know, the Internet was just starting to happen, and so there were no Internet law courses. Right. Even jurisdiction. You know, when you talk about jurisdiction, it was all the old stuff. It wasn't any of this. Right. It was all, <laughs> it was all about invasion of privacy yeah. and false light, and, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're just the right to be left alone. It just really, and I was there more than 10 years before you, so I really had nothing like that. So anyway, you you were also on, talking about the bar and talking about law school. You were on the Washington State Bar Committee uh, formed to develop privacy guidelines for technology. Yeah, and that was another great experience. That that committee is is finished now. Um, but so, what kind of guidelines did you develop? Well, what we were really trying to do is come up with um, a technology bill of rights um, with regard to um, court records and just, you know, accessing the judicial system. Because in Washington, prior to this, you know, there really wasn't anything there. 
And so if you access the court record, you would see somebody's full Social Security number. Right. You know, or if you were looking, you know, in family law and you're going through, you know, divorce papers, you would see, you know, all their kids, all their kids' Social Security numbers, you know, all their financial information. Just all of that stuff would be out in the clear for people to access. And, you know, no one had really thought about, you know, how you can take that information and just so easily facilitate identity theft. Exactly. And so, um, you know, we propose some some guidelines, you know, with, with regard to that, you know, you know, truncating the Social Security numbers so that you didn't have the whole thing there in the court record. Um, also, we did, um, this one didn't get adopted, but it's still something that is under discussion, and that is um, when data brokers go to courthouses and just, take all the records, you know, in bulk yes. to, to, you know, like, you know, I'm thinking of like Choice Point or Axiom. Um, or even some of the little guys, you know, you, you go on the internet and you type in background check and, you know, right. uh, there it all couple, is. several and hundred thousand come up, right. And so wanting to make, um, it, you know, that information available to people who need to have access to it, but to at least try and restrict the, the data brokers from being able to get all of that information, you know, as a bulk, one bulk item. And so we thought we had a pretty good chance of getting that one through, and then um, it got derailed in the end. But at least it, it you know, created a new um, area for people to discuss because they really hadn't thought about it. And that's actually why I think it got derailed is because it was something that was too new. They hadn't really thought about it. And so we're kind of afraid to make a decision um, on something they didn't really know a lot about. So, you know, I suspect that will come up again. Right. You know, it's it's an evolving procedure, and I think at some point it will pass. I think one of the problems with that, at least what I've seen, and and also when Senator Bill Nelson had introduced legislation federally on somewhat of an oversight for data brokers, I think one of the real problems that you're going to find, or like that, that we seem to find in this, was that government is government agencies like law like law enforcement and other agencies are buying these background checks and these uh, extensive databases from Axiom, LexisNexis, and from ChoicePoint. So there is really not much of incentive to. Um, to really regulate that, do you know what I mean? That that I absolutely is absolutely know what you mean, and that that seems to be an issue. And when you know, I'm hoping that the that S500, which was Bill Nelson, what he introduced before, that he that that or something similar is introduced again, because if they are going to collect this information and they are going to resell it and package it, hopefully they won't sell the social security number, and hopefully they'll redact you know, other things that could could um, help to contribute to identity theft and other privacy invasions, at least you and I as consumers should have a right to see it and correct it because I get all these people who I've, I've had several of them on my show who have background checks that have criminal violations that have nothing to do with them and they can't even correct them, I right. mean, without going through hell and high water. Right. Well, you know, um, I actually got access to my choice point file a, f- a few years ago um, from an anonymous source, so I can't tell you who it was because I don't really know. Um, but it was 20 pages long. And when I looked at the report, um, I would say probably about 75% of it was inaccurate. Exactly. And, you know, I would, n- had it not been for this anonymous source, I would never have even seen that report. And when I looked at it, it was. I, I was fairly shocked. I, I mean, a lot of the information in there was just stuff I had no idea was even going to be in there. Like, one of the things they, they had was, like, a list of people who they thought were my relatives. Yes. And there were like, yes. all these people on the East Coast who I'd never heard of, and I know that they're not my relatives. And neighbors not, that aren't even your neighbors, right? And neighbors, and neighbors who are my neighbors who aren't listed. Like my next door neighbor in San Francisco who I talk to every day, um, he's not listed. He's probably the only one on the block that actually knows me, and he's not listed. And and cars cars that you never owned, Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Cars I never owned. But, But the thing that was really shocking to me, though, about the relatives, these potential relatives, 
was that not only did it have their names, but it had their addresses, their phone numbers, and their social security numbers. Yes. I, I've seen mine. I, I've seen several background checks on myself as well, and um, and there's always something wrong. And you know, I years ago, back in 1996, I was a victim of identity theft, and the last I, uh, background check that I had done by the Orange County Sheriff, I had them do it for me because we were doing a program. I was doing a program on uh, identity theft with the sheriff's department, and they pulled a background check on me for us to look at so that we could use it as a sample but, you know, redact certain things. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, a lot of stuff um, from about my fraudster was on there. Her address, which was never my address, was on there. And other things about her that are still coming up, even after I've written the credit bureaus and I've written to everybody to tell them, it keeps coming back on. Right. So that, to me, is is very frightening uh, that, that we would have all this incorrect data. And the data brokers, when they do sell these to, as a, you know, when people join for a subscription service, whether it's a law firm or um, a title company or realtors or whomever is buying this they they tell them you know we we are not sure of the accuracy but everybody treats it as if it's accurate yes it's absolutely true but one of the things that you know i don't have an answer for this but you know i'm sure we all have feelings about it is let's just say for the sake of argument that we were able to get access to all of that information and all the information that all the data brokers have and we were able to correct it all so we have access to it. All of our, our files are now 100% correct. Is that a good thing? Well, I don't know if they'd <laughs> ever be 100% correct. When we think about the, uh, we do have access rights, and we do have the fair imp- information principle rights with regard to our credit reports, and yet our, our friend Ed Merzwinski, who does the, the United States Public Interest Research Group, he even found last year that 70% of the, the credit reports had errors. Oh, I'm, I'm very yeah. aware. Yeah, so I don't think we'd ever even see that we'd have 100% correct. But, but I'm, just, you know, I'm just giving you a hypothetical. Uh, hypothetically? You know, if we were, if we were able to have a, a report, a dossier like that on ourselves that was 100% correct, is that a good thing in our society? Well, I guess my answer, at least if you want my opinion, is we, I, I don't think a dossier on us is, is really a good thing, but the fact that it's out there, I'd rather have it be correct than incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, some things, I don't know if we could ever get it where we don't have a dossier out there. That, right. that's, that's the whole issue, really, isn't right, it? Right, that is the whole issue. Uh, and it's, it's something that I think that, you know, we haven't really discussed that yet. You know, we're still at the stage where we're discussing, you know, well, we don't have access to this information and decisions are being made about us based on um, potentially inaccurate information. And, I mean, and we know that it's inaccurate. We've seen our files. We, yeah, we know just between how the two, yeah, just you and I talking about it exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm li- we're talking right now with Deborah Pierce, and she is the executive director of Privacy Activism. She's a wonderful privacy advocate, very, very involved, very knowledgeable, and very passionate, and we're really thrilled that she's with us. And we're going to get back to talking now about... When you were at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we had a, a great conversation with Lee Tian, you know, last year, and that that you do, you know, they do wonderful work. So tell us about the kinds of things that you did there and what you learned from that. Yeah, EFF is definitely one of my favorite organizations. Yeah, it was my first job out of law school, um, so you know, I have a very warm spot in my heart for them. And Lee is definitely one of my favorite people. Um, he's just amazing, as you as you saw. And what I did back then was I did a lot of, this was all pre-9-11, um, so I was doing a lot of surveillance stuff. So I was working on Carnivore, which was um, the FBI's tool for monitoring Internet traffic. And so I learned a lot about Carnivore and got that all out there. Um, now let's, let's go back to that and talk a little bit, because I, I think my audience may not even know what Carnivore was and, <laughs> and how much of it really still exists. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, you know, kind of quaint now um, because the technology has just evolved so much since then. And, you know, there's the whole NSA spying issue that's going on right now. And that 
you know, there was none of that back then. So, I mean, it was really what carnivore was is they would, they had a little black box. The FBI had a little black box. They'd go to an ISP, Internet Service Provider, and they would attach it to um, the ISP servers, and they would get data um, on various customers. The big question was, are you just, vacuuming it all up and then deleting the stuff you don't need? Are you able to um, pinpoint the user, the specific users that you want? Um, you know, and we didn't ever really get a good answer to that. Were they searching for keywords like bomb or, yeah. or hate or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there was a lot of that. And, you know, and then, of course, you know, the, there was the, the issue of, you know, when if you're if they were looking for URLs, if they were looking for websites, if they were looking for search terms, you know, a lot of that is speech. You know, I would argue that yes. you know if you know I've got search terms, you know, where I'm I'm looking for I don't know, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. That may tell you something, you know, about what I'm interested in, and that's very privacy invasive. And so, you know, we, we thought that, you know, in terms of the wiretapping statutes, that, you know, it should be under the, the higher standard rather than just the, the lower standard. So, you know, with some issues like that. But I also did um, a lot of stuff um, working with coalitions. Um, I, I put together a coalition. That was back when um, HIPAA, um, the privacy, the medical records privacy law hadn't, gone into effect yet, and we were trying to get more privacy protections built into it. Right. And so, you know, putting together a right-left coalition um, to get, you know, Health and Human Services to pay attention to all the potential privacy pitfalls um, was something um, that I was doing. And, you know, so, but it was a lot of government stuff, and that, you know, that's not really ever been where my heart really is. My my heart has always been, you know, with consumer privacy. Right. But all those issues really affect consumers though. I mean they you really, really do. Were, I mean you were working on behalf of consumers. If if I if my emails and everything I'm doing on my computer is being um, surveilled, uh-huh. and um, it, it is an invasion of privacy. Of course I, I, I know enough to know that my emails are are not really private, and anything I want to send that is private, I'm going to password protect. I'm going to encrypt. I'm going to do whatever I can to mm-hmm. keep it as private as possible. But right, but a lot of people don't know that, and so you know we had to put together a, a lot of you know informational pieces you know that people could read on the site to like teach them about you know privacy, about encryption, about you know here's. Here's what, you know, all the technologies are. Like, I remember one fun thing that I did at, at EFF back then was I put together a pet fair. Yeah. <laughs> a privacy-enhancing technology fair. Hmm. So I got together a lot of companies. You know, I just called here, there, and everywhere and got them all together under, I think we did it at Bolt, um, actually. I probably had 25 companies there. And it's not that we were endorsing any one of them. It was just, here, everybody come to this pet fair and learn about, here's how you can encrypt things. Here's how you can, um, you know, here's various encryption programs. Here are um, email programs. There was this one great company called Disappearing Inc., <laughs> I love them. They're not in existence anymore, but um, they were really great. I mean, they were, their email would disappear after some amount of time. You know, you'd get it. You know, I've read that that kind of thing is coming back again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was great. There were there were also a lot of services um, where, like, if you wanted to buy things from Amazon or eBay or whatever, um, you could run it through this proxy, and you know, no one would ever have all the pieces. Everyone would only have kind of the need to know item yes yeah so it was really great so you know i had a lot of fun with that and it was i remember it being really well attended i think there were several i think it's a great it's a great thing to do yeah you should do that again you know it was a lot of work (laughs) it was a lot of work but it was a lot of fun too you know, we, we were in Toronto um, in October, I think it was, to go to the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and they had a huge exhibition hall with people like this, you know, that like what you're talking about. They had mm-hmm. all sorts of different data protection products and privacy protection products. So Lloyd and I went with our field recorder, and we went and talked to these 
uh, people who were at the exhibit and have them tell us um, about why their product is necessary and how it works. And it was that was pretty much like what you're talking about. It was fascinating for us. We weren't really endorsing the product. We just wanted to know why is that product even in existence? Right. What does it do? How does it work? And it it really was great. So we're we're going to be doing that again. We're going to a data another data protection conference very soon, and we're going to do the same thing to try and talk. Because I'll tell you something: these salespeople really know their product and they know the issues. So they're mm-hmm. they're great to talk to. And that was a, a great thing that you did with that fair. I think. Right. And <laughs> even if even if you don't decide to subscribe to any of their their products, at least you know they're out there, and at least it makes you aware of the issue. So, like, for some people, it's like, oh, I should be encrypting my email? <laughs> you know, this, yes. is, this is brand new information to them. And so they can go to several different vendors and hear several different vendors talk about encryption. And, you know, maybe nothing will match for them or maybe it's all too hard, you know, or whatever. But at least at least they're now starting to think about, oh, my mail isn't as, as private as I think it is. Yes, and I think that consumers are at such a disadvantage because mm-hmm. the technology is is so complex. And most of us are out there working, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm mediating all day, and I'm doing some privacy stuff, and I don't even have time to keep up with all of the technology. Even my computer consultant can't keep up with all of it. Right. So, And then if we do read it, we don't always really understand how to do it. It's not always so easy. It's, it's not, uh, you know, you have to be a techie to figure some of this stuff out on the computer. So right. I think um, we're going through this this really challenging time of, saying consumers need to know how to do this and be educated, but it's not that easy no, <laughs> for them to really do not. it. And that's one of the things, you know, it just this, this is kind of a natural place, but um, it's one of the things that we at Privacy Activism try and do. I mean, when we educate, when we try to educate anyway, um, we try doing it with pictures or games, you know, or something visual, something that, you know, is a lot easier to understand than the treatise <laughs> that we, we could write. You know, I was I was looking at privacyactivism.org, which is your website, and I was having fun with the uh, the college girl, you know, about <laughs> making <Bella>. choices. <laughs> the cartoon if, that, mm-hmm. you know, which choices do, do you make, which door do you go in, and which choice do you make. That Yeah, if, you, if when you're listening to this, you might want to go to pri- privacyactivism.org, and we are on the University of California Irvine campus, and you might want to look at some of the great things that they have, really great for college students. And, of course, we have the people driving by who are business people and, and people who are listening through podcasts. So we all can do it. But it's it's a great website. You have some terrific things like that. And, and it is helpful. It is very educational. So how did you start Privacy Activism? Well, it was one of those things. You know, I had been at EFF for several years, and I... I guess I was doing surveillance-type work, you know, working on government issues and a lot of that, which, you know, is important and I enjoyed. But like I said, my heart was always into consumer privacy. And so I just sort of decided, you know, at some point I was ready to, you know, take a leap (laughs) and start my own nonprofit, you know, which I knew was a huge endeavor. But um, I I felt like I was ready. So um, mid-2001... Um, I decided to leave and start up privacy activism. Right before 9-11, huh? Right now, my timing as usual. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the goals of privacy activism? So what we want to be able to do is, you know, educate people about privacy, but we don't want to preach at them. We really want to present information so that people can make their own choices. We want people to feel empowered on their own. So, like, when you look at Carabella, you'll see that um, we didn't just take the pure privacy maven approach. You know, Carabella can, you know, she can use um, credit cards online to buy stuff or she can buy stuff in the, in the physical store. Yes. And there are trade-offs. You right. know, there are privacy trade-offs here and there. And everybody has their own comfort zones. And they ha- they draw their lines in different places, and so we just wanted to present those issues to people. It's like, here are the places where you can make privacy decisions. Here are some consequences. You know, I think in one place we have Carabella protecting her privacy to the utmost, all the way along the line, and she ends up, I think, in a little forest all by herself. You know, because yes. you know that's pretty much it. You become a hermit. But you know, on the other end. 
we have when she just makes all the wrong choices i think we have her getting buried in spam and yes and <laughs> suffering identity theft so you know there there's a happy medium there and so we just want to educate people on that and then let them make their own decisions so that's our our primary goal and then you know some secondary goals are you know working with the privacy community um to form coalitions and we'll talk about real id in a bit but you know, that's a huge coalition that, that we're working with right now. Um, also, we did a lot of work with um, other coalitions on the um, Transportation Transportation Security Administration Secure Flight. Yes. You know, the passenger profiling system. We yeah, we need to talk about that. that. Yes, yes. We did a huge amount of work on that. And so, you know, and again, and those are things that use a lot of consumer information as the underlying, you know, principle that makes the whole thing work. And so that's why we even got involved in, in some of those things. Right, because the, the law and the policy really does affect each one of us every day. So let's talk about some of the things that are hot that you just mentioned. Uh, the Real ID Act has been really in the news, um, you know, and, and there's a whole bipartisan federal effort to revisit the Real ID Act. First, you know, a lot of people... What I've noticed is people don't really know. It's so hard to keep up with the news of what's happening in Iraq and what's happening locally and what's happening in the economy and real estate. And just, you know, we're really into privacy, you and I, but not everybody else is or understands it. And they just kind of let it go. You know, they're on information overload. So let's explain to our audience what about the Real ID Act and, and what the issue is for states to opt into it and, and opt out of it. So I think it's very interesting just to start with how it came into being. And okay. Very, very briefly. You know, if you look at the newspaper articles, they always say, you know, oh, Congress passed this law because, you know, they wanted to make us safer against terrorist attacks. Well, actually, Congress didn't actually have any discussion about it. It was inserted at the the provision for Real ID was inserted at the last minute in a must-spend um, emergency supplemental appropriations budget. So it had to do with getting money to Iraq for the soldiers, as well as providing money for the tsunami relief funds. So it was something that people really actually couldn't say no to. Yes, and so the legislature just passed it. Exactly. And what it does is it, cha- it just transforms the, the driver's license into, you know, from a driver's license into really a national identification card. And what it, what it requires um, is your full legal name, your date of birth, your gender, um, your driver's license or identification card number, your photograph, a digital photograph, um, some biometric information too. It requires yes, it requires some kind of physical security. I'm, I'm looking at the at the law. Right. Um, physical security features that that would be part of the biometrics. And the the really controversial thing that it requires is a common machine readable technology with defined minimum data elements. Kind of like an RFID reader. It could easily it, it could easily be an RFID tag. Yes. We don't know. We haven't seen the published regulations that would actually implement Real ID, and they're due to come out next month in March. Um, so we're all kind of waiting for that. And so since that's now getting close, and since the Real ID Act is slated to go into effect in, I believe, May of 2008, it's only a little more than a year from now, um, the states are getting antsy. And it's going to cost... Um, they've, they've done a lot of studies on this. It's going to cost about $11 billion to implement that for all the states. And Congress has only appropriated $100 million for right. the states. So there's just no money to do this. And, you know, in order to do it, I mean, you have to retrain all of the Department of Motor Vehicles people to understand what, you know, some of the documentation is that, that you're bringing in that establishes that you're a legal resident of this country. So you're, you're basically turning them all into immigration officers. Yes. And so that's going to take a lot of training if you're really going to do that. And, and then... And even and even worse, I think, is that the safeguards on it. Um, there's no... Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think at least for as a privacy professional myself and an advocate, I think what worries me most about having one of these um, national ID cards is that I would have everything in this card that 
the safeguards aren't there that could be read by bad guys as well. Right. And perhaps used for identity theft because the safeguards aren't built into this yet. And the technology, like you said, with RFIDs is rather new, so there aren't safeguards built in. The technology is is there, but not the oversight. And, well, and I think that's a very scary part. And just having this national ID, um, I was at a meeting a few years ago when they were talking about uh, the Real ID Act, and there was a suggestion that large companies like Visa, MasterCard, and others would help fund this for the states and the and the federal government, and in in exchange, they would your your Visa number would be on that, and then they would have access to it, <laughs> and they would have access to all this information. So again, we're you know uh, proliferating this sharing of data. Right, but also they haven't done anything about the physical security of it either. Yes. So, you know, you've got all of these these computer systems in the DMVs, but the DMVs look like DMVs, right? I mean, it's yes. not... And so if someone, you know, really wanted to, they could come and steal a computer, and they've got all of that information. And you're required to um, keep a copy of all of your supporting documents there with the DMV. So if you show up, at the DMV with your passport or your birth certificate or your utility bills or whatever it is you're bringing with you, all of that's going to be on file at the DMV. And so if you break That's in, going to be overwhelming, then they're going to have to scan it in, and then they will scan it in, and it's another database that could be stolen or hacked. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I'm saying is that, you know, the physical security of that information is is nil right now as well. And that's part of, you know, that's part of the $11 billion, but um, it's not there. And so you're going to have people, you know, submitting these documents, and we know that they're not secure either. So there are many points of failure, even though, you know, what Sensenbrenner, who is the, the proponent of, of the Real ID Act, said, oh, this will make us safer. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many points of failure that really I, it, I, there, I don't see how it could possibly make us safer. And there's been a lot of states who've already opted out. Mm-hmm. There's, there's been, uh, right now, I think it's about a dozen. Yes, and they're more <laughs> introducing that. And, and then wasn't there a bill introduced um, at the end of De- December or in December of 2006 to actually repeal that part of the Real ID Act yes. to even, you know, say, hey, wait a minute, we need to start over. We need to, you know, really discuss this because we didn't before, like what you're talking about. So I don't know where that bill is going, but... Um, it's in a variety, you know, it's kind of out there. Um, it Nothing has happened with it yet. I don't have the bill number of it. Okay, I but, have um, it right here. It's, uh, let me see, it's uh, S4117. Okay. was the Identification Security Enhancement Act of 2006, and that was a bill to repeal the Real ID Act of 2005. Right. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think, you know, every, you know, in the name of security, you know, 9-11, uh, we're supposed to be doing something like this. But I, I think, like you said, they kind of rushed it through. And when you do something like that, there's always a danger. Right. Tell us about the Transportation Security Administration. You know, we had the former... Uh, chief privacy officer on our show and there were a lot of things she couldn't answer and and there were a lot of promises that she talked about that they were going to clear up some of the names or you could get your name off the list if you were on that watch list and you couldn't fly and you were a 15 year old kid or something so there there's a what did you I know you did a lot of work on that tell us about that and uh, what you did and where where we are now well right now secure flight is dead Yes. Um, and it's the third incarnation. CAPS, the first CAPS, which is the uh, Computer Assisted Passenger Profiling System. Yes. Um, it's still in, in effect right now. And it's the thing, like, when you go to the airport and you get all the little S's on your on your uh, boarding pass, if that ever happens to you, and you have to go into the, the extra search line. Um, it's because they're using this old, old, old system. Um, they tried passing CAPS 2, which would have um, had risk assessments done, again, using a lot of consumer information. The, the data would have been held for, you know, 40 or 50 years. You couldn't see it. Um, it, was, it was nastiness. It, it also, um, we were able to kill that as well. 
and then finally Secure Flight, which, which was yet another another version of that. And my colleague. Um, now, how how was that uh, Secure Flight different from Caps Two? Um, we couldn't really tell. (laughs) (laughs) It had a lot of the same components, but what I was going to say, my colleague, Linda Ackerman, um, she was on on a working group committee that was put together by the Department of Homeland Security, and she had to get a security clearance in order to even be on this committee. And they met, you know, I don't know, seven or eight times in D.C., and they were only given partial information, even at that point. And you know they were, and there were a lot of good people on that on that committee. I mean, Bruce Schneier was on that committee, who does a lot of computer security stuff. He's a cryptographer. There's a lot of government people, you know, within Department of Homeland Security. So, but a lot of people who like know stuff about privacy and security, and they weren't given a lot of the information. Why they weren't given a lot of information, I don't really know. You know, it's one of those political things. I don't think that the committee had a lot of support from within. Department of Homeland Security, but that's just my opinion. Um, but there are so still people who can't fly, and they can't yeah. find out why they can't fly. I know. And so, well, secure flight would have made it a lot worse. And so it was clear we had to kill that. And because there, we they couldn't even see the the documents that they had security clearances to, or to see, you know, they're like, wait a second, you know, you guys haven't given us information. We can't evaluate your program. And so we're going to recommend that um, it not be implemented until you can at least explain what it is. Exactly. And so then they got a really bad review from the GAO, and so they... The Government Accounting Office. I just said, you and I know these I know, it's terrible. I know, (laughs) Government Accounting Office, yeah. They got a scathing report from them, and so Secure Flight died. And so it's not into effect. So we're waiting to see what the next incarnation will be. And you're right. In the meanwhile, people end up on these no-fly lists, and they can't get off, and they still can't get off. Right. If they're on, they they write. You know, I know uh, I have been contacted by several people who are on this quote watch list that they'll every single time they go to the airport, they they have to go through all sorts of hurdles and jumps and and miss their flight and their baggage is taken and you know it's it's an insanity that they cannot get off these lists and they don't even know why they're on these lists i know sometimes it's because their name looks similar to another name um that's usually what it is and you know they know like the dsa knows that you're not a terrorist you know, and yet they won't take you off the list. And I know that, I mean, I've, you know, people have told me as well that, you know, there's a process that you can go through. You know, TSA has it up on their website. You know, send us all of this information, like a copy of your birth certificate, your social security number, et cetera. We'll put it in our file, but we still won't take you off the list. Exactly. Even though so we why? know you're you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So that that's a crazy thing. Yeah, so, so it's it's bad. And, and so one of the other things that they're, they're now thinking of doing is uh, well actually I think they're they might have already done it in at least one airport I think in Phoenix maybe um, they've installed or will be installing um, a backscatter x-ray machine which people can go through which again is hugely privacy invasive yes because what it basically does is the x-rays don't penetrate your skin but they penetrate your clothes so they you can see underneath your clothes if you have any ceramic weapons or anything like that, you know, the idea is so that you can't get, you know, know, plastic explosives on planes, which is a good goal. Right. But the answer just can't be that you strip search every single person before they get on a plane. That just can't be the right answer, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and yet that that is what they are proposing. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that machine is accepted at mm-hmm. Phoenix. I mean, just, you know, one of the things that we also did was um, right after the Russian women um, allegedly blew up a Russian plane. Yes, yes. Um, so they started instituting really aggressive pat-down searches. And so we did a Freedom of Information Act request on that. Got a lot of data. And some of these stories are just heartbreaking. And just the way they searched some of these women, like parents were complaining, you know, they they felt like their kids were being molested by TSA agents. It mm. was just terrible. And so 
you know, it's like the the answer that they usually come up with, the TSA usually comes up with, is something that is, you know, kind of over the top. Yes. And I know that the backscatter machines are kind of a response to, well, we can't actually be searching people in that way because it's very offensive mm-hmm. <laughs> on many different levels. And so we want to be able to still make sure that the planes are safe, but not, you know, like do these aggressive pat-downs. So I know that's the rationale. And, you know, it'll just be interesting to me to see if that, you know, how people view that. Will they be accepting of it, or will they find that just as invasive? Uh, yeah, I think that they're going to find that invasive, and I they think it's, I, and I don't, I don't think that's going to necessarily get you off the list. And no. and, I, and I don't even know if the trusted traveler thing is going to work either, because they don't seem to have that. You know, uh, where you sign up and and you you know submit to a great background check, and and then suddenly you're a trusted traveler. I could just see these terrorists getting around that. It just well, of course. I mean, you just find someone who has no has nothing in their background. They look like, you know, they're completely clean, and yet they aren't. I mean, that's the thing with personal data. I mean, it tells you who you are. It doesn't say anything about what you will do. Exactly. It's not predictive in, in that way. So it just seems like, you know, taking all of this consumer information and trying to somehow make us safe by knowing more about people just seems to be the wrong way to go. It seems like if you really want to have physical security in that way, the best thing you can do is make make the physical environment more safe. Exactly. And even then, you know, it's not going to be a 100% solution. Exactly. Lloyd is telling me we don't have a lot of time. I, I just want to get to one of the things that you said that uh, when you and I were uh, corresponding, you talked about um, the use of social networks to educate and activate people mm-hmm. on issues. And so we just have about three minutes. Could you tell us what your thoughts are and what you've been doing? Because that's pretty exciting, Some a different way to educate people about privacy. Well, one of the things, you know, again, it's like one of those privacy-invasive technologies. You know, you go there and there's a lot of personal information. Yes. But I decided I was going to go for it and... So I've gone on, I've been doing this for a couple of years, and what I decided to do was create salons where I interact with people over a period of time, usually about privacy and civil liberties or politics, and then take that group, a small group, no more than a dozen people, and get them together in person to discuss the issues. And that has been hugely successful. Um, people really enjoy meeting people that they have met online and talking about these issues. You get people from all over the political spectrum, and they all bring different things to the table. And then you discuss with them things that you can do. You know, because a lot of people who, you know, I care about the issue, but I don't know what to do. I think that's very true. Yeah, it's like I'm so frustrated, I'm so overwhelmed, but what do mm-hmm. I do? Except- and so it's like we go over. Here's what you can do. And then, you know, whether it's writing letters to the editor, whether it's talking to your Congress people, whether it's talking to your friends and relatives about you know, like something like the Real ID Act that maybe a lot of people don't know about, you know, now all of a sudden they do know about it. And so they can talk to their Congress people about it. And so people feel very motivated. And, know, and, and empowered because now they're empowered. educated. Yes, And exactly. that's kind of one of my, my things that I like to focus on. So that's, and I knew that that audience was there. And so I've just been continuing to work with with that group and, you know, just get more and more people together um, to talk about all those issues. So it's, that's been a very exciting thing. So, so, Deborah, you've really been doing that through the social networking in, in, in the local area and then inviting them around to, to visit with you. Well, maybe people can write to you at privacyactivism.org and find out maybe how they can start doing that as well. Right. They can send, you know, anyone can send me mail. My, my email address is my initials, dsp at privacyactivism.org. And we've been, li- and we are so much appreciate your coming on, Deborah. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for uh, for inviting me. Okay, well we're going to p- spread the news for you. We've been listening to Deborah Pierce, who is the executive director of Privacy Activism, and you can go to her website at privacyactivism.org. You've been listening to Privacy Piracy. We are uh, on every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here at 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You can see our previous 
guests listen to their interviews and see our upcoming VIP guests at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Stay tuned because coming up next is a sorted audio with DJ Alex, who is absolutely terrific. And we hope that you'll join us next Wednesday. Thank you very much, Lloyd, my engineer. Great job. And stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.